Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about uh, Buddhist meditation practice. So if you've been practicing in our tradition and you have questions about uh, your practice, about applying your practice in daily life or how to use the practice to tackle issues that you face, post them in the chat focused specifically on on practical questions in this broadcast so this isn't the time for speculation or curiosity or intellectual theory it's about you and your practice and if you're not practicing or if you haven't done any practice then we put a link in the, on the screen to our how to meditate book that's where you should start we have courses in how to on on in mindfulness meditation. You can take an at home course or come to our center. So we'll spend the first fifteen minutes collecting practical questions, and I will be back at fifteen minutes after the hour to begin answering them. In the meantime, once you've asked your question, just spend some time in mindfulness practice, clearing your mind sorting out your thoughts and preparing for a wholesome dharma session. See you at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right, it's now 15 minutes after the hour, so from here on we will close the chat to everything except questions. So if you have questions, you're still welcome to continue to post them in the chat. Again, they should be questions pertinent to you and related to mindfulness meditation practice. So if you're not clear on the type of practice that we do, again, you really shouldn't be asking questions here. You should rather read our booklet and begin to undertake the practice. Because all I'm going to tell you is, all I'm going to answer is read our booklet and start to practice. But if you have been practicing, then this is the place to ask questions about your practice. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. We note everything during meditation, even dozing off for an instant. With continued practice, does mindfulness become 24-7, for example, even during sleep? Well, with intensive practice, you can even put aside sleep, and you can practice day and night. People do this for days uh, on end. Even uh, there are stories, although I don't know of anyone doing it more than seven days personally. There are stories of people doing it for months, uh, which I believe, you know, it's, it, it becomes sustainable. No sleep. You end up entering into states of sort of stasis during sitting meditation. And uh, your your general intensive, I mean, the, the trouble is getting that much uh, freedom to do that much intensive practice. But if you're able, you can make it sustainable even without sleep. But I think your question is more that, um, is, is this going to be something that I have to look forward to, like a way to live my life? But I don't think that's quite a good understanding of what the practice is for. This practice is leading out of samsara. This is a really profound thing. I mean, this is a path that doesn't end in you uh, continuing your your wandering in samsara mindfully. It really helps you let go of samsara. So everything changes. And once you've reached the end, no, you don't have to keep noting, but to get there requires pretty um, intensive practice. So yeah, the, the, the actual path will involve periods of intensive noting for sure, day and night, but not during sleep. Sleep doesn't allow for that. That's, you just, um, you'd put aside sleep when you really get into it. How do we deal with boredom? I note boredom, but it is persistent. It is more difficult when it work. Well, noting isn't to get rid of things, and part of what you're realizing is that you're not in control. So how do we deal with it kind of, and, and your description kind of suggests that you have an expectation of being able to control the boredom, right? deal with it. But I mean, deal with it is a good way of putting it. But the thing is, to deal with it, you deal with it rather than try to make it go away. You change your interactions both with it and with the things that you are bored of. Because there's nothing boring about anything you experience. Boring isn't an, an inherent quality, so it's on you. It's, it's, a, it's a bad habit, but it's a habit, you see. And you can't just turn it off. It's habitual. It's... it's um, kind of like instinctual, knee-jerk. So you can't just say, no, I'm not going to behave that way. Well, you, you, you are, because that's what you're habitually inclined to do. You have to change your habit. And part of the biggest part of the change is to, to become, uh, have, with a, have a clearer mind about it. And the clarity of mind will, will, will circumvent, no, will, will preempt, no will prevent you from getting bored. It's just not a it's just seen as not the right response. It's not valuable to get bored. Boredom is based on disliking. It's an anger based mind state, so it's not valuable. It's the boredom that's the problem. And and when you start to see that and see how unwieldy and unpleasant it is, you just become less inclined to get bored. I find it difficult to remain mindful and steadfast when confronted by someone who asks for help or comfort. 
It later affects my mental state and focus. How can I deal with an overflow of compassion? Huh. Uh, well, it's difficult to remain mindful. So, to start off, if we end it, if we ended it there, if we just take that first statement at face value, I would remark that yes, that's to be expected. Doesn't actually mean anything in terms of uh, changing your practice. Like, it's difficult, therefore I should do something differently. No, nope. it's difficult. That's just the way it is. So finding it difficult to remain mindful and steadfast isn't something that you need to fix uh, per se. I mean, it gets it's just it gets easier as you get better at it, and that's all it takes is you have to persist. And like any uh, training or any skill, it gets easier as you get better at it. So yeah, not being able to be mindful will affect your mental state and focus. But you see, the the great thing about early mindful practice is it helps you see all this. It's not, um, I mean, it's it's not shouldn't be anything surprising. It's just you're now understanding these very important truths that uh, your inability to be mindful due to your lack of skill is uh, causing you to react, or it's 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 allowing for these rea these unwholesome reactions to arise. Um, there's no, not really any such thing as an overflow of compassion. What, way, the way we put it is a corruption of, pa of compassion or a, a failure of compassion. And what that means is compassion has turned into something that is not compassion, but it's something like sadness, sadness or, or cruelty. Cruelty is the opposite of compassion, but, but sadness is the, it's called the near enemy of compassion. Like cruelty is the far enemy, meaning the opposite. But there's a near enemy as well, that, and that's what you might say would be overflowing. And it's not the overflowing, again, it's the corruption. The corruption of compassion leads to sadness. You get sad when you see other people suffering. And so on. But uh, you may also be saying, how do, I, how do I say no to people who ask for help or comfort? And I'm not really sure why you would do that. I mean, it shouldn't really be the norm. Um, the only reason you would do that is if you're really sure that it's not beneficial to do so, which, yeah, it's certain, there's certainly cases of that, but you should be open to helping people. Try to be careful about not just rejecting people out of hand. Um, yeah, you don't want to take the stance that, oh, I shouldn't be compassionate, of course, right? Try to help people when you can. It's not just for them. It really is for your own good, because as you can see, you feel guilty about not helping and worried that maybe you 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 did something wrong, and it really is kind of wrong. I mean, it's it's much better for you and makes you feel happy and good about yourself when you do help people. Good for your practice, helping others. You help yourself. I have the predicament that I have fewer desires and enjoy more peace, but also miss having more desires and being more motivated to achieve things. Any advice on how to handle this? Miss having more desires. That's probably not accurate. I don't see how that can be that, oh, I wish I wanted more things. I don't know that. that I think you have to be a little bit clearer about what you're actually experiencing. What could that be? I mean, there's certainly the fear of of losing the things, losing desire. Um, there can be boredom when you're not getting anything. Uh, but yeah, it can just be this ideology, this, this not ideology, this sort of intellectual idea, and the, the, the mere idea of not having anything to please you, not being pleased by anything, is still just desire for pleasure, craving for pleasure, or attachment for pleasure. I mean, you should just know there's there can be fear. So you may not miss having more desires uh, oh, and being more motivated to achieve things. There's still going to be some desire. It means you have a desire to achieve things. Uh, there can be ego involved, a desire to be a person who has achieved things. There can be low self-esteem or a judgment of yourself, like I'm a nobody, and because you have this ego, the, you, you feel you have to be somebody in order to mean anything, that sort of thing. 
I mean, it, it's probably a lot simpler than you're actually making it out to be. And you should just note what you're experiencing. There's nothing remarkable about this. It's just, they're just experiences. So try to see them as the simple experiences, usually of liking, disliking, worry, uh, fear, that sort of thing. Wanting, doubt, confusion, that sort of thing. Also, the enjoying peace, you have to be careful about. That can be a liking, because enjoying peace is, there's nothing special about that. That's just liking. If you like the feeling of peace, you're still attached to it. Nothing special about feelings of peace. They're, they're generally a good sign, a sign that you're a good person and you have wholesome qualities of mind, but as soon as you cling to them, you're no longer in that category. You're, you're now bad, you're now, you're now clinging, and you're going to cause yourself suffering. I was wondering how important it is to continue using the mantras. I find it now distracting, and I can focus better now during both my walking and sitting meditation sessions without it. Yeah, well, focus is one thing. We're not looking for focus, we're looking for clarity. And quite a different thing. What you're actually finding likely is that it's easier and, and more comfortable which we describe as focus, but that's misleading. Mindfulness is meant to challenge you, and it doesn't distract you, but it opens you up to distraction, uh, especially because you're not very good at it in the beginning. It takes time to be skilled at it. Mindfulness is not going to focus you on one thing. It's not going to allow you to be free from thought. But those thoughts aren't, that, that distracted thoughts aren't caused by mindfulness. That's just ordinary reality. There are meditations that you're probably inclined towards that silence that thinking mind. But that's not what mindfulness is about. With mindfulness, we're trying to see the, the normal states of mind, we're trying to ordinary states of mind, and to, to understand them. So when you're distracted, you should say distracted, distracted. And that's not going to stop you from being distracted. It's going to help you understand that you're not in charge. And you trying to be in charge is just leading to more attachment, more partiality. You're more partial to this focused state that you have during meditation than, than ordinary states when you're not meditating. And that partiality is just going to cause stress and suffering. It's deeper than what you're thinking, what your understanding is. So the, re the why you'd use the mantras is because you're trying to go deeper than just focus. Focus isn't in and of itself valuable. I mean, okay, that's not fair. It's not in and of itself enough or as valuable as seeing clearly. So eventually you got to let go of it and this preference towards it. Buddha said, even when you're unfocused, you have to learn to be mindful of that. That's the trick. Even when your mind is unfocused, you're aware that your mind is unfocused. That's what you have to do. Not make your mind focused. Look at the Satipatthana Sutta. The Buddha doesn't say that says, when your mind is unfocused, you know that the mind is unfocused. That's practice. Very different. It's deeper than ordinary meditation. That's why we use the noting. During meditation, I find that I become relaxed and my eyes will open very slightly involuntarily. Should I make an effort to close them all the way again while noting, or just let them be and note. Your eyes should stay closed, so close them again. But the real issue here is the relaxation. Again, this kind of with the last person, you, same as with the last person, you should note relaxed, and you're probably not noting it. It's very common to forget to note it or overlook it. So I'll say this, let me say this in general, because there's probably there's 54 people listening, and you all should be aware that you're probably not, many of you are probably not noting relaxed states, calm states, and it's really just a sign that you didn't read the book carefully enough, or you didn't, you didn't internalize the teachings. We have a blind spot for pleasant states, and the book is pretty clear, I think, that you have to note calm states and relaxed states. And it deals with the answer, or it relates back to the answer to the last question as well. We're not trying to be we're not trying to find these states. These are not the point. Being relaxed is is kind of, um, well, uh, meaningless, but uh, it's 
it's no better than a unrelaxed state from the perspective of mindfulness because we don't make those judgments that's the whole point we try to see things just as they are so when you're relaxed you are aware of relaxed you say relaxed relaxed or calm calm when you're restless or anxious or whatever you also don't judge that you know anxious anxious stressed stressed so uh, yeah and but lots of things see what happens when you don't notice things start to go all haywire or um, a skew or a muck or you know everything goes to goes to pot and that's why where you ha find these descriptions and then my eyes opened or there's other things that happened and then i saw bright lights or and then some magical thing happened why because you stopped you, you lost track of, of mindfulness and your mind just sort of went off on its own fantasy land lots of things happen and it's usually because you weren't noting the relaxation. I mean, it's it's um it's a um it's evidence as to how ordinary tranquil meditation uh, leads you to such um, special states, and that's really what it's for. It, it can lead even to magical powers, super 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 normal awarenesses, and so on. But it can't lead you to wisdom. It's not of that sort. If you want to practice mindfulness, it's actually beyond any kind of special experiences. I mean, it may not seem like your eyes opening involuntarily is is a special experience, but it kind of is. I mean, it's it's something that happens involuntarily, and it normally shouldn't happen like that, right? Why does it happen? Because you've lost the thread. You're no longer being mindful, usually because you didn't note the relaxation or the liking of it. You also don't note that. And both of those you should note. Do you recommend any mudras during meditation? Have you read my booklet? If I didn't have it in the in the in the in well, I don't know. I, I shouldn't be but read the booklet. And if you've read the booklet, try and understand what I'm teaching and how, how well, let me put it this way. Physical experiences should be noted. They shouldn't be um, given any significance. So even your posture doesn't really matter. Like, are you standing, walking, sitting, lying, or crouching? If you're crouching or leaning or standing on your head, you should be mindful of all these things. And so a mudra wouldn't have any significance. That's that that kind of question, it 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 shows a lack of understanding of the of the practice, but even people who have read the booklet might still have that. And you really have to it really just shows that you haven't haven't gained the understanding of, of mindfulness and how simple and practical and ordinary it is. Mindfulness is a very simple and very real thing. Mudras are not real, they're symbolic. And symbolism has no place in reality or mindfulness. It's meaning-making. If you give meaning to a hand position, you've already lost your connection with reality. I sometimes have experiences of awe, space, light, familiarity, sinking or vibration are these words too intellectual for noting no awe is fine space is okay yeah light is okay i mean i would note seeing just to keep it simple familiarity um yeah that's okay sinking is okay vibration all those are fine yeah Is it bad for a person who keeps the five precepts to offer alcohol to another who does not? Yeah, that's pretty bad. I mean, if someone asks for alcohol, I think there is a small, like my example is if you're a waiter in a restaurant and someone asks you for alcohol, you could say, I'm just bringing them this bottle. I'm not encouraging them to drink. I'm not um, 
appreciating or, or expressing approval of their drinking. I'm just doing my job. And that's my job to bring people things. So as a waiter, I think you're in the clear. But you're talking about offering people alcohol. So yeah, that's crossing a line pretty much. There's there's not really any way you could, I think, uh, no circumstances that would absolve you of the unwholesomeness of offering if you're offering people alcohol. Oh, no, there's one. And that's if someone has a cut and you offer them alcohol, rubbing alcohol. But rubbing alcohol will make you blind if you drink it. So it's a different kind of alcohol. And I assume you're not talking about that. Of course, I think, I think um, grain alcohol also is good for wounds. So I think if you pour vodka on a wound, it's still okay. If it's topical, alcohol is okay. It's for topical application. Why does a lifetime of suffering caused by addictions not help the addict to see the error of his ways and change course? How does meditation allow the change to happen while suffering in non-meditative, unmindful daily life does not? Well, you say it yourself, non-unmindful. Non, if you're unmindful, how could you learn from suffering? How could you, un, how could you see clearly and understand the nature of suffering? Suffering isn't about experiencing suffering. It isn't about suffering. Right? The first noble truth is suffer isn't or sorry, isn't suffer. The first noble truth is fully understand suffering. That, that, that's, not, that, that's not the same as just suffer. You don't realize the four noble truths by suffering. Otherwise everybody in hell would be all enlightened, right? You have to fully understand parinyaya fully understand or comprehend suffering. And that only comes about, that doesn't even require you to quote-unquote suffer. Because suffering is, is deeper than that. What it really means is um, uns the unsatisfying nature or things that are unsatisfying. And everything that arises is unsatisfying or unable to satisfy. Not worth clinging to is the real point. And that's what you see. That's understand is that nothing is worth clinging to and the only way you can understand that is through mindfulness so you're suffering a lot i mean it can shock you into asking the right questions and potentially lead you towards mindfulness it's very common actually for people who suffer a lot to seek out a solution whereas people who don't suffer a lot sometimes never seek out the solution but it's not always the case it's more a fact, a, a case of whether the person has great goodness in them. Do the fruits of practice inevitably lead to monkhood deterministically? The clarity gained from the practice may have removed defilements, but I find reality and life more challenging and paradoxical. Yeah, I wouldn't overthink it. I would say it will incline you towards a simpler life, and that's what the monastic life is. So you have the opportunity to ordain quite beneficial to do so. In one sense, encountering the practice has been detrimental to my life, in another, liberating. Is this state of withdrawal, ignorance, and must and we must muster up? Will this feeling eventually diminish? Well, that's not really the right question. Um, you know, a better question would be, what should I do, perhaps? But the answer is simply to note these states. You shouldn't try to make sense out of them, like, is this right or wrong or will this change or should this change you should um or or is this 
the way the practice is supposed to be? No, is this how I'm supposed to feel when I practice mindfulness? These are not the right questions. Mindfulness isn't about what you experience; it's about your responses to your experience. And it's about sort of preempting your responses, getting ahead of them. Sati niwarayang, sati te sang niwarayang. Yani sotani lokas mingya, sati te sang niwarayang. Whatever dreams there may be in the world, mindfulness is there, is that which damns them, which uh, blocks the stream. So it's this is poetic language. I think it was it was that that quote is from a conversation with an angel, and angels have very poetic language. So the the point is any kind of um, attachment or bad habit you have, mindfulness prevents it. So um, so how that relates to your question? What I, what I mean to say, or why I bring that up is because what you should do is note these these experiences. So. Um, whatever this experience is that makes you think that it's detrimental to your life, you should just note those experiences. It's not a, not really indicative of the of the practice. The practice is going to shake things up, but all mindfulness does is give you wisdom, and you can never say that wisdom is bad for you. That's the unfortunate, not unfortunate, but the uh, the killer argument against such such complaints. Um, the the that which nullifies any arguments against mindfulness is that yeah you can't argue that wisdom is bad for you it can be bad but I think we, and the point is what you're getting at is probably that sort of thing that you can see how it's interfering with you engaging in what are actually uh, activities based on delusion or ignorance and you can no longer engage with them because you're no longer deluded or ignorant. And that's kind of unfortunate in a practical sense, but in a very real, sorry, in a conventional sense, but in a very real sense, it's quite fortunate because you'll never have the consequences of engaging in deluded activities or ignorant, ignorance-based activities. Um, but, but, but the real point that I was trying to make is that you can't say that this or that is, 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 the way the practice is supposed to be. You just have to be mindful and try to see clearly the new experiences. Because, yeah, it can be a real challenge in the beginning, even conventionally. Like, it challenges relationships. It can put you at odds with people you love because they don't understand the changes in you and you can't no longer uh, identify with them or sympathize with their uh, inclinations. And that sort of thing. So in the beginning, it can be quite a disturbance, conventionally, in, in a worldly sense. Um, and yeah, so your question about whether feelings should eventually diminish, it's not really how you should look at it. Just try and be mindful of the feelings and try and see what you're actually feeling on a momentary basis. And when bad feelings diminish, it's because you stop clinging to them or you stop feeding them. So I guess the answer is ultimately yes, it will eventually diminish bad whatever bad feeling you're referring to. Is the strength of the mind a property of vijnana, or is wisdom technically not classified in the five khandas, or six senses, which we call reality? There's nothing outside of the five khandas except Nibbāna, so um, I don't know if you could classify Nibbāna as wisdom. No, no, wisdom is a, is a quality of the mind. It's actually um, called asamoha, which means lack of delusion. So it just means having clarity. Wisdom in Buddhism is clarity. But then you talk about strength of mind, and you're, you're you're identifying strength of mind with wisdom, but that's not really what wisdom is. Again, wisdom is this lack of delusion. Strength of mind could be uh, confidence, could be concentration is a very common one. 
um, not really a very useful question. I mean, whatever it is, it's good, right? So try and cultivate it. While meditating, it is my understanding that noting should be simple, such as hearing, noting a sensation like pain, or noting thinking when my mind wanders. Is it correct to note in simple terms? Yeah, reasonably simple, but not too simple. I know some people just start noting feeling for everything. If they feel anger, they say feeling. If they want something, they say feeling, because technically it's all just a feeling, but that's really unhelpful. Not it's not uh, it's not wrong in an ultimate sense. It's just far less useful than noting anger or, or liking or worried. If you're worried, you shouldn't just say feeling because you feel worried, right? Pretty simple to say worried, worried. Uh, and other people will note distracted for everything. If something distracts them, like if they're angry and that's the distraction, they say distracted. Or if they hear something, they'll say distracted because they're distracted by the hearing if they think that's it. So everything is just distracted. And that's also quite unhelpful. It's, again, not technically wrong, but it's far less helpful than actually noting the experience. So it's rather than saying the simplest note is the best, because then you could just note experiencing for everything, right? No matter what it is, just say experiencing, experiencing. That would be pretty useless. Not entirely useless, but far less helpful. Yeah, it wouldn't be very useful at all. Um, so rather than say the simplest note, you should probably say uh, a more uh, moderate note. Don't be too technical or too specific. And certainly don't get into the details of things, like noting what you're seeing, because that gets into convention and conception. Try and note the actual experience. Could you please give advice about laziness? I don't have the desire to work a worldly job. I'm curious about what you'd have to say about laziness and how to mindfully deal with it or work with it. I'll be a less lazy person. Laziness isn't something that a, uh, a good meditator has to deal with. It It's a sign that you are a bad meditator. So it's a lazy question. It's a, it's a common question, and that's why I'm so hard here, is because I'm not actually attacking you. It's going to be hard on everyone for asking this question. No, I don't have any specific advice for laziness. You're just lazy. You're just not a very good meditator. If you were a good meditator, you wouldn't be lazy. And really, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't really, I'm not really trying to be hard on you. I'm just, let's be clear here that this is our problem. We're lazy. And if we weren't as, so lazy, oh. Or if we were a better meditator, we wouldn't be so lazy. If we weren't so lazy, we'd be a better meditator. But it just means you're not a very good meditator. What's my advice? Do more meditation. And, uh, I mean, even that, it's just going to take time because you're too lazy to meditate. It's on you. That's your problem. you got work to do. Shape up or ship out. No, shape up or... On. You're gonna you're gonna wander through samsara for eternity. Laziness is just a sign that the person is not developed as an individual. And again, it's most people. It's really not singling you out. I'm not saying, oh, listen to this person. They're they're substandard human. No, most people are like this. That's why we get this question so often. But we get it as out of laziness. You're asking this question because you're lazy. That's not quite fair, but kind of. You don't have to ask this question. You just have to work harder. And it's up to you to to work harder. It's up to me to tell you to work harder. You know what's a really good way is associate yourself with people who are not lazy because they give you a good example. They set a good example. And the best way to do that is, of course, to undertake a meditation course with a teacher who's going to give you a kick in the pants. They'll keep you, keep pushing you, and uh, they'll help push you to work harder. A lot easier to be lazy when you don't have um, support.
What does it mean in the Satipatthana Sutta when it's said that we should contemplate the seeing in the seeing, the hearing in the hearing, etc.? Yeah, the word contemplate isn't in the, the Satipatthana Sutta. This is something I've talked about in our study group. It's not the word that's used, and it's quite unfortunate that the translators chose to use that incorrect translation. This is one of the times where I won't just say, I don't agree with it. I'll say, this is wrong. And it's it's problematic, right? Because people then ask this question. How, it doesn't say that. It literally doesn't say anything about contemplating. It doesn't even connotate. You know what it says? It says, sees seeing in regards to seeing sees the body in regards to the body right it's 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 uh hinting at vipassana which means seeing clearly so mindfulness leads to it leads you to see things but but this statement in see seeing in the seeing which means it means in regards to seeing you see it as seeing and that's why we say to ourselves seeing so that's all that you see about it. You don't see it as a dog or a cat or a person. When in seeing, you just see seeing. You just are aware of seeing. No contemplation required. None even mentioned. It would be wrong practice to start contemplating. So I think it comes from people not practicing themselves and trying to interpret it in an intellectual sense that's that's not very charitable but i can't think of it as anything but that it's just wrong translation when you begin to see your intentions more clearly it seems that every thought and act seems to be associated with that intention do intentions disappear eventually, or just purify? I think you're overthinking things. I don't really have any comment on this question. When you have intentions, you should note them. Uh, your acts, you should try to note them as well. I think you're making more out of this than it actually is. Um, so your question as far as do intentions disappear eventually? Um, yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about that. They, they, no, they, they you, you just, your impure intentions disappear, so they don't purify, but, um, Intentions, of course, disappear. Intentions are momentary. And the next moment after they arise, they disappear. That's the nature of reality. But unwholesome intentions uh, no longer arise for one who is enlightened, of course. So you only have pure intentions arising. What do I do when anxiety makes me physically ill? I note anxiety, but deep down, I want to feel better because the negative state is unsustainable. No, you should note wanting for sure. Um, but anxiety doesn't, I mean, physically ill, it, it certainly gives rise to physical symptoms, um, but you should note those as physical so that you don't get anxious about them because that just snowballs, right? It creates a feedback loop. You get anxious about the results of anxiety, and that makes you more anxious. And and you also dislike the feelings, and that leads to anger and frustration and depression and that sort of thing. So you have to learn to see the physical sensations objectively without judging them as bad or ill. I mean, there's nothing wrong with using the word ill, because that is a good description. It's just when that becomes pejorative in your mind, then the reaction is anger and, and disliking, disliking of those states, of those physical states, when in fact they're just physical states and you really would be best served by seeing them neutrally as just physical states. Then you wouldn't react to them, you wouldn't get upset because of them. So try and separate the anxiety from the physical states and note them both. Note the anxiety, note the physical states, and note the disliking the physical states because that's the real problem there. There's no such thing as a negative state. It's just your reactions to it which are negative. 
Why is using a universal term such as feeling not as helpful as using a more direct term such as boredom, anger, etc.? Well, you kind of answer it there. It's more direct, but um, I mean, I think this question just comes from lack of experience. Um, there's no way that just saying feeling for everything is going to be all that beneficial. Try it. Try and actually practice. I told you how to practice. Do it, and this sort of question shouldn't shouldn't come up here. You just gotta see it for yourself. You get far better clarity using actual terms rather than kind of a cop-out just saying feeling all the time but but you should see that for yourself through the practice i mean this question is kind of just a curiosity question in regards to the meditation practice what would you say is the true purpose and meaning of being consciously mindful seeing clearly have you read our booklet? The goal of mind, the purpose of mindfulness is to see clearly. To see clearly what? To see clearly the three characteristics. Impermanent, suffering, and non-self. Because when you see those things, you lose your delusions of things being stable, satisfying, and controllable, and so you become independent of them, no longer clinging to them, no longer requiring them, so no longer dependent on anything. That's freedom. When you're free, you can say, I'm free. There's nothing more to do. You say relaxation is useless, but isn't it one of the seven factors of enlightenment? No. No, relaxation isn't. Um, you could say basati, which is tranquility. I mean, that's just basati means like quieting of the mind. Um, so yeah, when the mind quiets down, that's uh, one of the seven factors. But relaxation isn't. Relaxation is. Uh, I mean, the thing is, even the seven factors of enlightenment, if you were to identify or, or equate relaxation with tranquility because they're just words right um it's still useless if it's not associated with the other seven factors and the only way any of them are useful is if they're directed by mindfulness mindfulness is the only one of those seven factors that is universally um universally to be cultivated the others are are going to be things you have to balance with each other so if you just talk about relaxation, that's useless. But if you practice mindfulness, you could, there is a way you could say it relaxes you. It's not the, what I would say. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's entirely accurate, but let's say it quiets the mind down. But it's only because of the mindfulness that it's of any use or value. So if you're not noting relaxed, relaxed, you're you're just giving you're giving free rein to delusion and most likely craving or attachment. As I am getting more aware, I am feeling distant from family, friends, relatives. I feel like a square peg in a round hole around them. Is this normal? doesn't matter whether it's normal it's what you experience um, mindfulness isn't it, it isn't it isn't the point to give you different experiences or specific experiences though it will of course it will give you specific experiences but it's not about those experiences it's about your your awareness and your, sorry, your clarity about those experiences so so what happens is when you gain a greater clarity your life starts to change, and the way you look at things starts to change. But it's not like it's not a pure process because you're not a pure meditator, right? So you're also going to have all sorts of ideas. You'll make mistakes in the practice, and those mistakes can be quite powerful. And if you don't have a guidance of a teacher, you can even practice wrongly. With mindfulness, there's not much danger of that as long as you follow the instructions. 
not that common to hear about people practicing mindfulness really wrong, going wrong or that sort of thing. But it, it, it's imperfect. And so you're going to make mistakes. You're going to alienate people. You're going to start getting... Meditators often get quite conceited, like I know better than you because you're not a meditator and dismissive of other people. Um, you know, um, can be belligerent towards others. Try to tell other people what to do because now I know better because now I'm a meditator. You know, all these things. It's it's imperfect. You can't blame mindfulness on everything. But ultimately, in a purest sense, your question is not really important. Not important whether it's normal. It's what you're experiencing. And the best thing you can do remains to be mindful of it. Why? Because that helps you to see it more clearly. It's quite simple. It's not a, this isn't a cultish practice or some kind of occult practice. It's a very simple practice and it's a very simple goal is to see it more clearly. So when you see it more clearly, you're less distorted about it. You're less, have less um, corruption, like like less perversion. But by perversion, I just mean distortion. Like you have less wrong reactions to it, right? Because you can only have wrong reactions if you misunderstand something. That's the definition of wrong, right? That's why we call them wrong. So it can only be wrong if you misunderstand the situation. Once you start to understand the situation, your reactions are are better, more right. Oh, yeah, when you experience these things, just the only answer is to be mindful of them. Thank you, Bonte. We've crossed the hour, and you've answered all the questions in the top tier. Okay, well, thank you all for your questions. May everyone benefit from this session and benefit from their practice, more importantly, and find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you to the volunteers for your help, especially Chris, who's always here to lead the charge. Have a good week, everyone. Sadhu. Sadhu.